Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, time for the show. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here with a brand new episode of Scripture Uncovered. Hey, we just returned from our teaching tour to Israel, our January highlights tour, and we had a wonderful time. Great group of people. We had 55 folks, and we traveled all over Israel teaching Scripture on site, right where the events happened. Now, you might recall in our last podcast, I spoke of David. I was teaching David at the caves of En Gedi, right down by the Dead Sea. And that was David's hideout, a box canyon, when Saul was looking for him and David was on the run. And it's a great teaching location. So we had a good time there. But as I was thinking about it, having gotten home, I wanted to follow up on David a bit. We spent a lot of time with David on our teaching tour in Israel, but it occurred to me that as we read the David story and we read the story and teach the story on site, rather than read black words on a white page when we read scripture, we're reading in living color and Dolby sound. We have sight, sound, images to attach to our stories. But more than that, If we want to become educated readers of Scripture, which is really what our job is in Logos Bible Study, to become educated readers of Scripture, we need to look at Scripture in a much more detailed fashion. And as I was teaching the David story at Caves of En Gedi, uh, and also at Beit Shan when uh, uh, Saul dies, Saul and his sons die at the Battle at Mount Gilboa, and their headless bodies are nailed to the walls of Beit Shan. Oh, that's a wonderful story teaching on sight. But you know, when you think about the stories, there are so many gaps in the story. And if we're to become really educated readers of Scripture, we need to understand how to read those gaps in the story. And I'd like to illustrate that by going back to Genesis chapter 20, uh, chapter 22, Genesis chapter 22, and look at the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. And I want to look at this story and teach you how to read the gaps. And we'll start with that story, and then we'll go to the David story of David and Bathsheba. So turn over with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. Now recall, Abraham and Sarah longed to have a child. They were childless for many, many years. And Sarah convinced Abraham to have sex with the servant girl, Hagar. And Abraham said, okay, and they did. And Hagar had a son, Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the son of the promise. The son of the promise, the covenant God made with God, that son was to be the son of Abraham and Sarah. But a lot of time had passed, a lot of time. And Sarah was 89 years old, Abraham was 99 years old, and they still didn't have that child. Well, quite miraculously, God intervenes, and at 99 years old, Abraham impregnates the 89-year-old Sarah, and she's going to have a child. Now, I want to erase that image from my mind. Oh, but anyhow, That's what happens. And Sarah gives birth at 90, and Abraham is 100. And that son, oh, can you imagine how they doted over that child? 
Well, now we turn to the story. Isaac has grown up, and Isaac is the one. Ishmael's been sent away, Hagar's been sent away, and Isaac is the one, the child of the promise. And then we read something stunning in Genesis 22. Let me read to you. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. I, I can't imagine what Abraham must have thought. What was his immediate reaction to that? What was the expression on his face? This son that you have longed for, for, for decades and decades, and now you have your son, and God wants you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering? What in the world is that all about? What would you do? What would you do if God said to you, I want you to sacrifice your son or your daughter as a burnt offering to me? That is, kill your son or daughter for me. I, I can't imagine what went through Abraham's mind. But we read, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Now pause there for a moment. We have a gap in this story big enough to drive a Mack truck through, right between verses 2 and 3. When God said, sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the mountain I will tell you about, and then the gap, and then early the next morning. So what happened between the time God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and the next morning? Do you think Abraham went to bed that night, had a nice glass of wine, good night's sleep because he had a big trip in the morning? No, you can be sure Abraham struggled. Can you imagine the desperate struggle that you would have coming to terms with this demand from God? Because Abraham loved his son. Abraham loved his wife, Sarah. And yet, God asks Abraham to do this. All night, do you think he talked it over with Sarah? No, I don't think so. All night long, all night long, Abraham struggled. Abraham wept. Abraham tried to come to terms with all this. But then by morning, we find out Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Holy cow, Abraham is going to do it. Abraham is going to sacrifice his son. Now imagine Sarah and Isaac at the breakfast table while Abraham has been up all night and now he's out back chopping wood. Well, how much wood does it take to consume, fully consume, an entire human being? That's a lot of wood. So imagine Isaac and Sarah at the breakfast table and Abraham chopping wood out back. 
attention in the story. Well, the wood's chopped, loaded on the donkey, and Abraham and Isaac set off. Do you think Abraham told Sarah where he was going? Do you think Sarah might have asked, what's this all about? But Abraham is silent. No words are spoken. He and Isaac head off. Now we have another gap between verses 3 and 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up. So they traveled north from Beersheba to Mount Moriah, which is just outside of Jerusalem, mountain ridge in Jerusalem. Three days they traveled. Can you hear the donkey walking and the creaking wood on the donkey's back? Is there any conversation? Abraham's leading the way. But what about Isaac? What about the servants walking behind the donkey? What happened at night when they stopped for the night and and made dinner and sat around the campfire? Oh, I imagine Abraham sat off to the side, pensive, picking at a plate of beans. And Isaac wondering, what in the world is going on here? Well, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here while the don- uh, with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We will worship and we will come back. Huh. What did Abraham know? Was Abraham just saying that to get Isaac to go with him? Or is there something else? Now, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. So Isaac is going to carry enough wood up that hill to consume an entire human being. Isaac is not a child. He's not an infant. He's not a boy. Isaac is a full-grown man. He hauls the wood up the mountain. Abraham himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Abraham. Now, I imagine by now, Isaac's getting a pretty bad feeling about all this. And Isaac said to his father, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Oh, that's definitely a bad feeling. There's no sacrificial animal. The only two going up are Abraham and Isaac. And then Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, there is a wonderful grammatical ambiguity here in verse 8. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, comma, my son. Or, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Grammatically, we don't know if this is an appositive or evocative. If indeed we put the comma, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, comma, my son, Abraham simply answers his son Isaac. But 
if there's no comma, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Well, that comma makes a big difference. If I were to say to you, feed the lion, comma, Jim, Jim would go out, get the meat, and feed the lion. But if I were to say, feed the lion, Jim, that's an entirely different thing. The ambiguity is wonderful in this story. Now, when they reached the place God told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on the altar. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now remember, Isaac is not a boy. He's not a child. Isaac is a full-grown man. Isaac permits himself to be bound by his father, who is a hundred over a hundred years old at this point. Isaac willingly submits to his father and lies on the wood that will be his funeral pyre. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Abraham's going through with it. What, what, what's this? Oh, we will go and we will come back. No, it doesn't look like it. Abraham raises the knife to cut the throat of his son. And imagine the expression on Isaac's face. The most wonderful painting of this scene is the Caravaggio sacrifice of Isaac. Have a look at it. Google it online and you'll see the expression on Isaac's face. A full-grown man, not a boy. But all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord cried out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by the horns. He went over, took the ram, and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time, and he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants so numerous, as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together back to Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. What a story. What a story. How old was Isaac in this story? Well, we're not told. We do know, clearly, he's an adult human being because he did carry the wood all the way up the hill. But we have a brief interlude right after this story, a little genealogy. Sometime later, Abraham was told, 
Milcah is also a mother. She's born sons to your brother Nahor, Uz the firstborn, and Buzz his brother. I love those names, Uz and Buzz. <laughs> Kamuel, father of Aram, Kesed, uh, Hadso, and a list of people who were born. Then we read in chapter 23, a big gap in between chapters. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and weep over her. So Sarah dies at the age of 127. Now, recall, she gave birth to Isaac when she was 90. So that means, as we enter chapter 23 of Genesis, Isaac is 37 years old. The sacrifice of Isaac's story in the previous chapter happened just a little while before that, not much longer ago. So Isaac was, what, perhaps 33, 34, 35? Isaac was a man in his early 30s during the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, is anything occurring to you here in this story? Well, of course, of course. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, his only son. And that phrase is repeated three times in the story. Isaac is a young man in his 30s. Isaac is sacrificed on the wood of the altar. Of course, the early church fathers saw this story as foreshadowing the sacrifice of Christ, in which God offered his son, his only son whom he loves, as a sacrifice on the wood of the cross. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And God indeed did. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. What a story. And the gaps in the story really make the story work. They really make the story work. Well, why did Abraham, or how did Abraham, decide that night to go through with it, the night that he spent wrestling, struggling with God? How did he decide? How did he know to do it? Over in Hebrews 11, we have a hint. We're told that Abraham understood resurrection. Aha! His son would be back. And metaphorically speaking, Isaac was resurrected. He was as good as a dead man. And of course, that supports the early church fathers' reading of the story as foreshadowing the sacrifice of Christ. Now, if you would, turn over with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Another story in which we have to engage the gaps. When we get to 2 Samuel, David has become king. David has been enormously successful in everything that he's done. David, against all odds, became king. David had no claim to the kingship. The kingship was in the house of Benjamin, uh, in the line of Saul. But David became king. 
with the death of Saul, his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. And I told that story at Beit Shan. It's on a podcast a couple of times ago. But now, with all the success that David had, we enter into 2 Samuel 11. Now, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David sat in Jerusalem. Now, that should really give us pause, because David is the archetypical warrior. He is the warrior king. David always led the battle, and he led from the front. If we're taking the hill, David's the first one up the hill. But now, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sat on his butt in Jerusalem and sent General Joab out with the men to fight the battle at Rabbah, that's Ammon, Jordan of today. David sat in Jerusalem. Well, clearly there's something terribly wrong. Red flags should be flying all over this opening verse. Now, one evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. David didn't know who she was. He sends a man to find out. The man came back. He said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he took her. That is, he raped her. And she came to him. He raped her. And we read parenthetically, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she went back home. And the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. You see the compression in this story, the compression of time? David, not leading his men as he was supposed to do, is just strolling around on the roof of the palace, sitting on his butt in Jerusalem, doing nothing. He sees a woman bathing. What, she was on, the, on her roof in a bathtub? No, of course not. We're told that she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. She was immersing herself in a mikvah because her monthly cycle had just ended. That tells us two things, that she's not displaying herself to tempt David. She's indoors, in the house, in the mikvah. David's looking through the window like a peeping Tom. And it tells us that she had just completed her period. So when David has sex with her, she becomes pregnant by David. Now what's David going to do? And notice how the scene works. David saw her. He sent someone to find out who she was. The servant came back and said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Well, who are those people? Uriah the Hittite, if we turn over toward the end of 2 Samuel, in a list of David's mighty men, Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men, one of his key officers. And Eliam, Eliam, is the father of Bathsheba. Her grandfather is Ahithophel, 
We learn that over in the list of David's mighty men as well. And Ahithophel is David's senior political advisor. So knowing that, that this is the granddaughter of Ahithophel, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of one of your key officers, who's off fighting the war for you, David should have said, hands off, don't touch, get nowhere near her. But he didn't. He didn't care. David didn't care. David always cared about his men. But now, there's something wrong. David doesn't care. She sends a message to him that she's pregnant. So what can David do at this point? David sent word to Joab, General Joab over at Rabbah, Mon Jordan. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Now imagine that. It's a two-day journey over to Rabbah. From Jerusalem down to Jericho, that's a day. From Jericho up to Rabbah, a second, perhaps a third day, depending on how fast one travels. All that way. And Joab, the commanding general, gets a message, send me Uriah the Hittite. No explanation. Pull one of my key officers out of the battle, send him to Jerusalem. Something big must be happening. Something must be going on. Maybe a tragedy at home. Maybe something happened to his wife. So Uriah travels back. Now he's with the servant. Do you think he might have asked the servant, why am I being brought back to Jerusalem? Did something happen at home? What does David want? Well, the servant may or may not know. I don't know. With the way a palace works, and the rumor mills in a palace, I'll bet everybody had an idea about David and Bathsheba, about what David had done to Bathsheba. Do you think the servant would tell Uriah? I don't think so. They travel on, much like in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Nothing's spoken during the entire trip, the three-day journey. When Uriah finally appears before David, David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's a euphemism for, go down to your house and have a rip-roaring night of good sex with your wife. Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with the soldiers. Uriah didn't go home. Now, if David could see Bathsheba's house from his palace, Bathsheba can see the palace from her house, and they can both see Uriah sleeping outside with the soldiers. The tension builds in this story, and we're left to fill the gaps of what's going on. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Look, Uriah, haven't you come from a long way? Why didn't you go home last night? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. 
and our master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as I live, I would not do such a thing. Well, there are many commentaries that see this as a very noble statement on Uriah's part. I'm a loyal soldier. I couldn't possibly do that. But if the servant knew, and if the servant told Uriah what happened, and even if the servant didn't tell Uriah, if Uriah only suspected it, he nurses that. And when David asked him, why don't you go home? Uriah said to David, in this tone of voice, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. While you are sitting here in a palace on your butt. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife as you did, as surely as you live, which may not be much longer, I would not do such a thing. Now, if that's the tone, and David said to him, stay one more day, tomorrow I'll send you back. He cuts the tension. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invite, invited him and he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. Now, can't you just see that dinner party? David and Uriah seated at the table. David on one end, Uriah on the other. All the food laid out, the servants coming in and out. And Uriah not eating anything, just knocking back drinks. Glaring at David. Oh, if this is the case, David knows that Uriah knows, and Uriah knows that David knows. In the evening, Uriah went out to sleep with the men. Again, he did not go home. So now what can David do? Well, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. Now imagine Uriah getting that, getting that letter. I'm sorry, Joab getting that letter. Put Uriah in the front line. Joab must have thought, what? Now Uriah has been with David since way back in the mercenary days. And he wants me to have Uriah killed? What's going on here with David? But Joab, good general that he is, gave a hearty aye, aye, sir. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite was dead. So Joab couldn't go to Uriah's men and say, look, here's what I'm going to do. I am putting you in the most dangerous spot in this battle. And on my signal, I want you to withdraw from Uriah because he'll be leading from the front, just like David would have. He'll be leading from the front. And on my signal, you withdraw from him and he'll be cut down. Uriah's men were loyal to him. They would not do that. So Joab sacrificed Uriah and his men. 
Boy. Joab sent David full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. He may ask, why did you get so close to the city walls? What's wrong with you? Don't you remember who, who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall? <laughs> Dropped a big rock on top of his head from the wall? Why did you get so close to the wall? What's wrong with you? If he says that, then you tell David, oh, by the way, Uriah the Hittite is dead. Oh, said David. Well, these things happen in war. Do you see this story? Do you see the gaps in the story that we have to fill in? We have to fill them in. The whole story of David and Bathsheba and David coming to Bathsheba, Bathsheba being brought to David, her becoming pregnant, all the interaction between Uriah the Hittite and David, it is filled with gaps like, like Swiss cheese. We have to fill the gaps. We have to fill them in. And our decisions as educated readers of Scripture will determine how the story progresses. So there are two examples of this reading the gaps. You know, on our tours to Israel, our teaching tours to Israel, the great part about the tours, well, meeting all of you, my wonderful students, and we had a very nice group on this last trip. But in addition to that, teaching on site where the events happen adds color, tone, and texture to the stories. And then we go back to our classroom. And we learn how to read the gaps. We learn how to engage a text as a literary work. And, you know, over the years, that has been the greatest privilege of my entire life. So, hey, it's good being back. We had a little gap here as we got classes going. We're in the live classes. I'm teaching uh, St. Paul's pastoral letters. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus, plus the early epistles, Galatians and First and Second Timothy. Thessalonians. Uh, they're up online right now. You can register as a remote student if you're not able to attend live and get all of the PowerPoints. Oh gosh, I've been writing these, these PowerPoints every week. They're over a hundred pages each, but it's a ton of material. I'm really thinking these letters through very carefully and analyzing them very carefully. But hey, if you have an opportunity, register as a remote student. All the PowerPoints, the syllabus, and all of the recorded lectures up to this point. And we're week five. They're all up there right online. So I'll be talking to you again next week. Uh, real good being here with you. Have a blessed week. Keep me in your prayers, and I'll keep you in mind. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.